Good morning again. And it's kind of a strange, please those of you who are here, uh, I apologize for not being able to focus <laughs> on you because most of our Sangha is on this screen. So I, it's really difficult. Plus I have to focus on my, my little book here. So please forgive me if you don't feel connected because I feel connected with you. Last week, we talked about the activity of selfing. And I was considering uh, whether there was a, an opposite to selfing. What, what can we do or not do that will keep us from selfing? And the best thing that I came up with was that we can have a taste of not selfing when we practice, when we practice sitting. But we have to choose this. And that's why the title for today's talk is Your Choice. Most of the time, we don't, we really don't have a choice about this process of selfing. We're just swept up in it. Uh, everybody else is selfing. <laughs> so we're selfing too. It's part of what is done in, in our human world. And in order to stop that, even to have a taste of stopping it, is to choose to stop because selfing is intoxicating and it's endless. And we are encouraged to continue to build and inflate and achieve these things that we uh, call the self. So I want to, today is kind of um, an homage, homage to American Zen practitioners. I should have given this talk maybe um, on Independence Day, but um, or Interdependence Day. But every day is Interdependence Day, so we can. I'd like to pay homage to our American Zen ancestors, and this is a quote from Henry David Thoreau. I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to confront only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach. And not when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. This was a deliberate choice that Thoreau made to basically to go into retreat, which he did for a while, I think maybe more than a year. He went on a Zen retreat 
in, in Walden. And that retreat is a sort of ancestral paradigm for what we do every Sunday when we retreat, when we stop, when we deliberately, and we have to do it deliberately because otherwise we, we just get swept up in the demands of a daily life. Deliberately choose to confront the essentials, the essentials of life. So Thoreau was not motivated by curiosity. It wasn't merely, um, well, let's see what it's like to uh, go out into the woods and sit and be by myself. He said it was a matter of life and death. He wanted to confront the essentials of life so that when he was about to die, he could say that he lived, confronted life fully. So my question for you today is how do you approach this practice? How do you approach Zen practice? There was a, um, an advertisement in New York for a new condo, new condo building. And the advertisement read, for a Zen lifestyle, live here. I don't know what that meant. Do they have a meditation hall there? <laughs> you know, is a Dharma teacher running the place? I doubt it. I think they were talking about a fad, a lifestyle that <laughs> seems to be uh, appealing to a lot of people these days. And I can remember also when I was a kid, you know, if you wore sneakers to school, you were really considered low class. You know, sneakers were like, you couldn't afford shoes. So, so you wore sneakers. And today, sneakers are, you know, you can spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars on sneakers. It's just a fad. This is true with, je with, uh, with uh, jeans too. You know, when I was young, I mean, jeans, wearing jeans meant you couldn't afford real pants. <laughs> but today, you know, you got a, you know, Gloria Vanderbilt uh, stitched on the back pocket of your jeans and you are, you know, you're, the, you're not the hoi polloi, you know, you're, you are the elite. So Zen has become one of those fads that has kind of been co-opted by mass culture and it's become fashionable. So is this the way you approach your practice? Is this the way you approach Zen? Uh, you're the curious practitioner 
you're 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 curious, if, you know, kind of um, collecting experiences, co collecting lifestyles. So the curious practitioner, and I've heard this from. I'm sorry to say, I'm not sure that some of our Sangha members really meant it this way, but I've heard, you know, Mado, I'm, I'm kind of curious about this. Uh, I, and it sounded, it sounded um, like it didn't have a deep root, that question. So the curious practitioner will have, you, I might say, a practice of convenience, not a practice of life and death, <laughs> but a practice of convenience. And sometimes I'll hear from the practicer, the practitioners of convenience, things like, I'm really busy, but I practice, uh, I practice while I'm cooking. Or I'm practice while, while I'm playing tennis. You haven't said that, but but I practice when I'm in a car uh, at a stoplight or in traffic. You know, I'm really busy, but I I have you know I practice basically at my convenience, or when I have nothing better to do. You know, when there's, there's an opening in my schedule and I haven't had, I haven't plugged in anything. So I think I'll meditate. I was planning to practice, but something came up. A friend invited me to coffee. And I just, you know, I couldn't resist. I meant to practice, but something else came up. Or there are things I just have to get done before I can even think about practicing. <laughs> you know, I have deadlines, I have priorities, I have commitments. So the, the practice of convenience is one in which the practice continues to um, get substituted by things that are more important, which have a greater priority or are more pleasurable. And so it kind of, of the to-do of the list, of the to-do list, practice keeps kind of descending the ladder. Um, and that is the practice of convenience. It's a, you could say it's a form of selfing because the practice depends upon what you personally like or don't like. It depends on how your life unfolds at, in a very personal way. It's not a practice which has an integrity in and of itself, which is a matter of life and death. And thus it is a practice of commitment.
So when you have a practice of commitment, it's not about what you want or what you like or what's on your schedule. When you make a commitment to this practice, you're making a commitment to the Buddha, to the Dharma, to the teachings, and to the Sangha. It's not making a commitment to your schedule. It's making a commitment beyond the self. Thus, the practice isn't about selfing. It's not about your satisfying your curiosity or being able to say, well, I'm, I'm a Buddhist, you know, or I'm in, I practice Zen. So to have a committed practice has to come from some deep place inside of you and has little to do with yourself. When we, when we imagine Robert Frost at that crossroads or Thoreau making a deliberate choice, I'm taking the road less traveled. That's a commitment and it can be scary as, as there is that sense in the poem that, uh, you know, maybe he, sh maybe he should have taken that other road. It's never, it's never absolute, but it takes courage to take the road less traveled. And it takes commitment because everybody else is going that way. And you're going maybe a different way. So it takes courage, fearlessness, and a certain level of clarity that yes, this is what I want for my life. This is what it means to live a committed and integrated and meaningful life. There's another, not an American, but a, a Danish philosopher who I've studied a great deal um, named Kierkegaard, Soren Kierkegaard. And he wrote a book entitled Purity of Will, it, Purity of Heart. Purity of Heart is to will one thing. Purity of heart is to will one thing. This is, this is unitasking. This is not necessarily that you do the same thing, but that you will one way of life and you make a commitment to it and you proceed with clarity, with courage, and with commitment. And sometimes in order to get clear about what 
you really want in life is to retreat, is to stop. A number of years ago, I, I knew that my time at Penn State was over, that I was no longer really at home at the university. And this went on for 10 years, that I would stand in front of the classroom and I, I was a decent teacher, but I wasn't there. I, I, I just, it was no longer nourishing me. And I was no longer um, doing the best job that I could because I just didn't feel at home there anymore. And I had all kinds of excuses. My students need me, blah, 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 you know. But it just didn't feel right. And that went on for 10 years. And then I went on the most demanding retreat of the Zen year, which is called Rohatsu. 14 hours of meditation, gradually increasing day after day. At the end of that retreat, I was so clear that this is what I needed to do. And as soon as I returned from the retreat, I called my department head and said, I need to meet with you tomorrow because I knew that if I waited any longer, I'd find more excuses to stay because major change and commitment is very difficult. But my heart was telling me very clearly that this was no longer where I needed to be. And when I met with him, he said he knew that I was going to quit. Um, and that took, it took me 10 years and a lot of retreats to get clear, not only to know what I needed to do, but to believe that I needed to do it and then to act on it. That last, that last little phase is huge. You can know what you need to do. You can believe that you really need to do it, but then to really do it, to actually walk that path, to step on it and to begin to walk, to take the time to go to Walden and actually live in that little cottage. Purity of heart is to will one thing. I'm also thinking of, and I think I mentioned this to our Thursday group of Steve Jobs. <clears throat> who was a student of Kobenchina Roshi, who is our lineage holder. When he, uh, he enrolled in Reed College, which is a, was and is a very progressive college, and his parents who were not wealthy 
saved up all their discretionary funds to put him into college because they knew that he, he, was, he had a special talent. And he went to read college. And as soon as he began taking classes, he realized none of that interested him. And so he dropped out and instead kind of became a kind of wanderer uh, sleeping in friends' houses and apartments so he could take a class which really interested him. And that class was a class in calligraphy. His heart, his will drew him to something he knew he had a passion for. And it turns out that he had the confidence that following his heart, his, his passion, his, the clear sense of what he needed to do would, would in the end, he'd be able to collect, connect the dots and find a way in which this calligraphy class would serve him. And in fact, the whole design of Apple and the Apple font and the Apple computer was based on that calligraphy class. So we need to slow down. We need to stop selfing for a while so we can get clear. We try to do this every Sunday together retreat together. And in a committed practice, we do this regularly, daily, even if it's for five minutes, even if it's for one minute to sit down. I, I suppose we never really come to a full stop in the sense of selfing. <laughs> but we can come, what is it, a rolling stop? <laughs> I like rolling stops. I do a lot of rolling stops. Yeah. So, so we can kind of come to a rolling stop periodically and go inward and get clear, connect with what our heart, when we're too busy, when we're too busy selfing, the last thing the ego wants is to get in touch with your heart. It's it's all the oughts that the ego thrives on. <laughs> all the oughts, all the competition with everybody else's self that the ego feeds on. So the last thing the ego wants, that self wants, is for you to connect with your heart. But you can do that when you stop for a while and settle down go on a mini retreat so you can listen to, to get sort of turn down the static and listen to the clarity right here. And I want to end with a um, a quotation from E.E. E. Cummings, another wonderful American poet. And this is from his little prose poem, The Hardest Battle. 
to be nobody but yourself in a world which is doing its best night and day to make you everybody but yourself means to fight the hardest battle which any human being can fight and never stop fighting. To be nobody but yourself in a world which is doing its best night and day to make you everybody but yourself means to fight the hardest battle which any human being can fight and never stop fighting. To find your original voice, sometimes in Zen it's, the koan is, what is your original face before you were born? To find an original genuine voice, to find your voice is a lifelong job and requires a committed practice. Thank you.